hostages freed in Texas. But what is the true story behind the woman at the heart of the hostage taker's demands? Why is she being held in an American jail? We also speak with an international reporter on the situation in Russia. Governor Hochul says New York may be turning the corner on the COVID epidemic, at least the Omicron version, and Bojo's apology, what that means for the British government. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news for Sunday, January 16th, 2021. The FBI identified a hostage taker killed at a Texas synagogue as a British citizen. Malik Faisal Akram, who's 44, was killed after the safe release of his four hostages last night from the synagogue in Coleyville, Texas. President Joe Biden earlier today said the gunman had used weapons he got off the street to commit an act of terror. With regard to Texas and the synagogue, I spoke this morning with the attorney general and uh, to get a rundown on, he said there was overwhelming cooperation with the local authorities and the FBI, and, and uh, they did one hell of a job. This was an act of terror. This was an act of terror, and it not only was uh, related to someone who had been arrested, I might add, 15 years ago and been in jail for 10 years. The idea is it was something new, uh, and uh, they did just a great job. I also told him that I wanted to make sure we got the word out to synagogues and places of worship that we're not going to tolerate this, that we have this capacity to deal with assault on particularly the anti-Semitism that has grown up. And so, uh, and I'll be talking with, uh, I put a call into the rabbi, we miss one another on the way up here, and, uh, but they should rest assured that we are focused. We are focused, the attorney general is focused on making sure that we deal with these kinds of acts. Biden was in Philadelphia with First Lady Jill Biden packing carrots and apples at a food bank in a visit to the city to honor the legacy of slain civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Akram's brother, Gulbar, posted on Facebook that the suspect from the industrial town of Blackburn in the north of England suffered from mental illness and said the family had spent all night at the Blackburn police station liaising with Faisal, the negotiators, the FBI etc. And that was the uh, post on Facebook. Police were informed of the hostage taking after a man was heard having a one-sided phone conversation during a Facebook live stream at the service, ranting and talking about religion and his sister repeatedly saying he didn't want to see anyone hurt. The standoff ended last night when an FBI hostage rescue team stormed Congregation Beth Israel in Coleyville, about 16 miles northeast of Fort Worth, ending the 10-hour standoff. The Coleyville police chief spoke with reporters after the hostages were freed. They were having services, and those services were being broadcast uh, across Facebook and uh, across Zoom. And we began to get information that a gunman had entered the uh, synagogue and taken four individuals hostage. At that time, patrol resources responded to the area. We called out our SWAT team, our North Tarrant Regional SWAT team, who responded. We set up a perimeter, and we began to evacuate the houses that were in the local area. 
At some point in time during the uh, times we were negotiating with the subject for a period of time all day, constant communication with him. He did release one hostage in the middle of the uh, incident. That hostage was not harmed, and he's doing well now. And that's the Colleyville Police Chief. The hostage taker claimed to be the brother of Pakistani neuroscientist Afia Siddiqui, who is serving an 86-year prison sentence in the United States on her 2010 conviction for shooting at soldiers and FBI agents. He demanded that she be freed. He's not her biological brother. And there was some confusion in which allegations are made that Afia Siddiqui's biological brother was somehow the the uh, person in the synagogue, which uh, took some time to be straightened out. The subject of the hostage taker's anger was this woman, Afia Siddiqui, a trained scientist who was living in the United States before returning to Pakistan, where she was abducted with her three children and disappeared for five years. Her six-month-old child died during the still mysterious captivity. The other two children were kept with her during that time. Siddiqui appeared on a city street after those five years passed. She was disheveled, looked terrible, and was arrested. It was in Pakistan and taken to be interrogated, where a number of U.S. intelligence agencies, Army soldiers, also arrived at the police station in this town in Pakistan. An attorney for the Siddiqui family is Steve Downs. He lays out what happened. Siddiqui graduated from MIT and Brandeis University, got a Ph.D. there. Married, had three children, went back to Pakistan when her marriage broke up. Shortly after arriving, and this is in 2003, she was kidnapped off the streets of Karachi with her three children and disappeared for five years. We now know that this was at the request of the United States government that she be arrested and that the Pakistani government has said that she was arrested and turned over to the Americans. Where she was during that period, America refuses to say. They simply claim they don't know anything about it, but of course that's entirely consistent with their policy of black sites and ghost prisoners at black sites where they don't have to acknowledge responsibility for the things that they have done. Five years after she disappeared, she suddenly appeared in Afghanistan under very strange circumstances dazed, disheveled, wandered into a mosque, was detained by the local police, and the Americans said, oh, we want to interview her. So they sent a group of soldiers over to interview her. They came into the room and promptly shot her. Then they uh, patched her up. She almost died, but they brought her to the United States without any apparent authority and charged her with attempted murder of the soldiers who came in and supposed to interview her, but who ended up shooting her. At the trial, the FBI had done a complete forensic examination of the room in which this all occurred, and they were unable to find any evidence that she had fired a gun. Her fingerprints were not on the gun. There was no shell casings from the gun. There was no powder burn or residue powder burns on the curtain next to where she shot. There just simply was no evidence that she had shot at the soldiers, except for two small holes in a wall. They dug into the wall, but they couldn't find any bullets. But the prosecution said, well, that must be the two bullets that she shot at the soldiers. At the end of the trial, they produced a picture which had been taken hours before the soldiers ever got to the room, and it showed the two holes were already there. So the whole prosecution case, from a forensic point of view, completely went up in smoke. There was simply no evidence that she had ever shot at the soldiers. And indeed, there were people in the room who said she didn't suit at the soldiers. 
Nonetheless, she was convicted of the crime of attempted murder of the soldiers, was given 86 years in jail, which is an astonishing sentence, considering the fact that nobody was injured, nobody was even threatened except for Afia herself, who was shot. And she is now serving that in Texas, in Carswell. The charges were brought very, very narrowly. The only thing that was relevant in the trial was that one minute when somebody picked up a gun and supposedly shot somebody, although there's no evidence of that. And that was what the trial was about. How she got there is ruled out because that was claimed not to be relevant to the trial. Let's bring it to what happened in the last couple of days and last night with the release of these hostages. From our point of view, that the whole incident at the synagogue had absolutely nothing to do with it, except that it brought back up the case, and suddenly Afia's case becomes more important than what happened at this poor synagogue where all these innocent people were held. Uh, thank God they were all spared. I think it's a good opportunity to re-examine Afia's case because there have been so many lies told about her and so little evidence. For example, they call her a terrorist. She was never charged with terrorism, never. The government had an opportunity to do that after they found her in Ghazni, and they never did. They charged her with this other crazy charge, which wasn't true. Why didn't they take her to Guantanamo? During the original kidnapping, one of her children died six-month-old Suleiman, that her other two children were, were held along with her for five years under horrible conditions. And the U.S. government may have hoped that she could give them some evidence that would have helped convict Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. It seems clear they tortured her. The fact that she was never used as a witness indicates either she didn't know anything or refused to cooperate. But it certainly doesn't excuse the kind of behavior that the government has engaged in. The case really needs to be re-examined. She is probably one of the most important or well-known political prisoners, if not the most well-known political prisoner in the world. We will not make any progress in settling the Middle East until the U.S. government starts to deal seriously with the case of Afia Siddiqui. We have filed a commutation petition with President Biden. It has been years it has not been acted on, but we're again calling on him to please look at this commutation petition that shows that she's innocent, that shows the abuses, and calls for her release. The attorney for the Siddiqui family, Steve Downs, he spoke with WBAI earlier today. And Ukraine said today that Russia was behind a cyber attack that defaced its government websites and alleged that Russia is engaged in an increasing hybrid war against its neighbor. Today, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the United States and private sector companies are still working to determine the source of the attacks. He says the United States has warned for months about the possibility of cyber attacks from Russia and has been working with Ukraine to improve that country's defenses. The alleged cyber attack comes as the United States has accused Russia of preparing to invade Ukraine, a charge the Russian government denies. Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, spoke about it on CNN. Well, you see that this is not happening. This is number one. Number two, we have uh, heard yesterday, yesterday night, the statement by Mr. Sullivan, and he promised to publish the proofs of that accusation within 24 hours, if I'm not mistaken. So we're still waiting for that proofs. You know, we're living in a world uh, of uh, fake accusations, of fake news, 
and in a world of lies. And until it is proved somehow by something, by something visible or something understandable, we will continue, uh, will continue to presume that it is fake news and this is false accusation. Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, United Nations-based journalist Ian Williams, says he doubts an invasion is imminent, but he says the more telling event occurred last week when Russian troops were sent to Kazakhstan, a former Soviet republic, to put down an uprising against the new government. He says the move to prop up the government in Kazakhstan is part of a high-stakes game. It was fairly amazing that Putin pulled his Russian troops out of Kazakhstan. But it was a very astute move because, first of all, he didn't want to get embroiled in there. There's lots of Kazakhs who are not very nationalist. They're actually quite pro-Russian in many ways. But a Russian occupation would have been too much for them. He was intervening in what is increasingly suspiciously like a faction fight between the different clans in Kazakhstan. Yes, people were genuinely fighting for freedom and democracy and better economic conditions. But the... Rulers, rulers in Kazakhstan are, have, were carefully balanced. This is straight back from the Mongols. You had the Great Horde and the Lesser Horde and the Middle Horde. And when I was there, everybody knew who was in what. You can't tell from the names. So outsiders are often locked out of this. But the ruling horde with Nazarbayev was very careful to spread the favors around so that the spoils were distributed. And it does appear that Nazarbayev's clan felt they were going to get locked out under the new guy. That was part of the result. In Almaty, all of the government's officers were suddenly left without guards. Nazarbayev's men, former dictator there, were all controlling the security service. It looks like they were ordered to stand down to allow rioters to go ahead. This sounds uncanny like Washington, almost like the NYPD during the Black Lives demonstrations. They expediently stood by and let things happen because then they could intervene. It's a very murky story and it will, it'll come back to haunt them because the one thing Kazakhstan had going for it was stability. Now it doesn't. And that reflects on the rest of Central Asia, reflects on Ukraine, reflects on Georgia, reflects on all the places. And the question is whether Putin, who is not stupid, he might be arrogant, but he's not stupid, whether he pushes his luck too far gets to a A plus ultra for the West. He's playing an interesting game because he's on both sides with the Turks and the uh, and the Armenians. He's on he's on both sides with the Germans and the rest of Western Europe. He's got an interesting deck of cards and he's playing it fairly astutely. But there's always a risk. Remember, my test piece on this was Sarajevo. Everything looked so stable in 1914. Who'd have thought that one silly guy in a cocked hat with feathers on getting shot would have precipitated the biggest war in history. Nobody anticipates these things, the law of unintended consequences, which can go rampaging on. And that's uh, journalist Ian Williams. He referred to A plus ultra. That's a way of saying the ultimate. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul Durienzo. Novak Djokovic was deported from Australia today after losing a bid to stay in the country to defend his Australian Open title, despite not being vaccinated against COVID-19. 
A mass Djokovic was photographed in a Melbourne airport lounge with two government officials in black uniforms before he left for Dubai. It's not clear where he'll go from there. Among the possibilities are Spain, Mar Monaco, or his native Serbia, where he has an almost iconic status and likely be greeted with a hero's welcome. The saga began when Djokovic was granted an exemption to strict vaccination rules by two medical panels and Tennis Australia in order to play in the Australian Open. That exemption, based on evidence that he recently recovered from COVID-19, apparently allowed him to receive a visa to enter Australia. But upon arrival, border officials said the exemption was not valid and moved to deport him. A court initially ruled on procedural grounds that Djokovic would stay, but Australian Immigration Minister Alex Hawke, who has wide powers, later decided to deport him. In addition to not being inoculated against the coronavirus, Djokovic is a vocal vaccine skeptic, and the government said his presence would stir up anti-vaccine sentiments. And in apparent good news, New York Governor Kathy Hochul signaled yesterday that the Empire State was making progress in its fight against the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent surge of the Omicron variant. So here's the news flash, turning the corner. You heard it here first. I've been waiting to say that. Turning the corner. Look at the seven-day average of cases starting to decline 49,027 cases yesterday. Our highest point was how long ago? One week ago. Highest to lowest in a week thus far, and that lowest is going to continue to go down. We had over 90,000 cases one week ago today. 90,000 people tested positive in the state of New York. 49,000 right now. So that is a very positive trend. And that is Governor Hochul's state health data shows that there were 1,843 new COVID-19 patients admitted to hospitals on Friday, a decrease of 38 new patients from the day before. However, the number of new patients admitted to intensive care units increased by 34 patients from the day before after 1,653 were admitted Friday. The state has reported that 70.8% of New Yorkers have received a completed vaccine series as officials work to push for expanded access to testing and vaccines, including booster shots. And then across the pond to Great Britain, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland, Prime Minister Boris Johnson apologized on Friday to Buckingham Palace for raucous parties held in Downing Street the night before Queen Elizabeth's buried her husband, Prince Philip, in a socially distanced ceremony that left her grieving alone in a choir stall. Johnson, who apologized in Parliament on Wednesday for attending a garden party during a lockdown in 2020, was not present at either of these two gatherings. This is a clip of his apology before Parliament on Wednesday. Mr. Speaker, I want to apologize. I know that millions of people across this country have made extraordinary sacrifices over the last 18 months. I know the anguish that they have been through, unable to mourn their relatives, unable to live their lives as they want, or to do the things they love. And I know the rage they feel with me and with the government I lead when they think that in Downing Street itself the rules are not being properly followed by the people who make the rules. When I went into that garden just after six on the 20th of May 2020, to thank groups of staff before going back into my office 25 
minutes later to continue working. I believed implicitly that this was a work event. And Labour Party leader Sir Rodney Starmer was having none of it. After months of deceit and deception, the pathetic spectacle of a man who's run out of road. His defence, his defence, that he didn't realise he was at a party. (laughs) It's so ridiculous that it's actually offensive to the British public. He's finally been forced to admit what everyone knew, that when the whole country was locked down, he was hosting boozy parties in Downing Street. Is he now going to do the decent thing and resign? And that's Labour Party leader Sir Rodney Starmer. Journalist Ian Williams agrees it's time for Bojo to go. If this happens, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. We have had loads of evidence of contracts for the biggest contracts in the world, anti-COVID for the National Health Service, which have been sent out on private lists to friends of Boris and the cabinet, breaking all the rules of procurements. It's naked corruption. And then here we have naked privilege. This is where the resentment is really coming People are prepared to make sacrifices when they're shared sacrifices for a common end. But when the prime minister is sending police to prosecute people for going for a funeral gathering in excess numbers and the prime minister is parting away in the garden of number 10 Dining Street, this is getting a bit much even by stiff upper lip British conservative standings. He really should go. What I'm surprised hasn't happened yet, and I think it's because the political party system in Britain has decayed so much. In the old days, the grandees of the Conservative Party would have met in a country house, had a quick whisper over Port and Sherry, and Boris would have been carried out on a stretcher with a big knife in his back. That's how they usually handle these things. Doesn't the Queen invite him into a a one-on-one in a room where she has a bell next to her and she reads him the riot act from the royal family? Now, that would be interfering in politics. Her sole job is if her advisers persuade her that Boris Johnson has lost the confidence of the nation, which in this case means majority of members of parliament, then he's got to go and she will ask somebody else to form a new government. That hasn't happened yet. Part of the reason is that almost anybody who's a potential rival has been either offed politically, politically assassinated, or is up to the necks with Boris in this miasma of corruption. He's dragged everybody else down with him. He's in the swamp, but everybody else is in the swamp as well. So it's it's difficult to pick which swamp monster to have to lead Britain. The decline and fall of the British Empire is is on a fast track compared with the Roman Empire. I think it took 1,500 years to see the Roman Empire off. It'll be much shorter to see the British Empire. And that's Ian Williams. He spoke also about... Uh, What's happening around the Duke of York, that's uh, Prince Andrew, who uh, lost all his uh, titles like his royal highness and all his military uh, medals and titles and colonels and what have you uh, that are commonly and often given to members of the royal family who sit at the top of one of the world's last monarchies, Great Britain and its other nations. 
Prince Andrew lost all of those, and the rationale for it isn't clear. The uh, BBC says it's part of the ruthless activities of the uh, royal family in making sure that they don't are not exposed to any losses. You might know that last week, Prince Andrew uh, Accord allowed uh, it, it said that a, an agreement that Andrew had signed that he claimed prevented him from or blocked him, uh, blocked the courts from asking him questions about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, who died in prison and whose assistant Maxine uh, Ghislaine Maxwell was uh, recently uh, convicted of numerous crimes associated with trafficking in underage women. Uh, and, uh, of course, that's where Prince Andrew's name popped up as one of the folks involved with that. And he is being sued by one of the young women at that time, young women who says that when she was 17, uh, she was abused by the prince. So uh, we asked uh, Ian Williams about that, and he had this to say. The rare opportunity in Kazakhstan, of all places, of meeting Prince Andrew at a British embassy party. Um, and uh, he was there. His job was to go around drumming up business for British companies. So he was shilling for, um, I think it was British gas at the time, to try and get the dibs on the Kazakhs gas. So it's, it's very, um, very topical in a way. Kazakhstan at the time was definitely a place where he could do Epstein-style activities. It was... Um, Talk about the flesh pots of Central Asia. There was free money floating around. And I'm sure he wanted to get his hands on some of it. He got a house at a knockdown price from a Kazakh billionaire, which he resold. There was some property deal involved in the Kazakhs. Look at Kazakhstan. That dynasty's only been around for one generation. Nazibayev is gone, and it looks like he's being cleared out thoroughly now and disowned by Putin and all the other people who helped put him there. It doesn't all go well for Britain, because... Prince Charles, with eccentricities, is not the most popular person in the world. A lot of people find the Queen quite sort of attractive because she was there during the Second World War. And she shared. She stayed in London. She joined the women's auxiliary forces or whatever. So she actually did her bit at a time when these parasites and sharks are, are swimming to warmer water without pausing. All of that good reputation is about to go down. Wearing fancy uniforms with lots of medals on, which they haven't earned. Not many tears about Prince Andrew having his military titles taken off him. How many colonelcies can one officer have? <laughs> Pretty amazing, all the rules and regulations and protocols. The failure, even one of them, not the curtsy to the right person they would fear could bring down the whole thing. Even now, I mean, they're very, very protocol conscious what you call he was his royal highness as a duke of course i think he as a duke he's entitled to be called your grace and i've been playing on things like your disgrace the grand old duke of york because you remember the nursery rhyme the grand old duke of york he had ten thousand men he marched them up to the top of the hill and he marched them down again and that's Ian Williams, international journalist, explaining the intricacies of the relationship between the Parliament of England and its other countries, Great Britain, as it's called, and its monarchy, one of the last monarchies in the Western world. And that's some of the news for Sunday, January 16th, 2021. The news is produced with Max Schmid and Linda Perry. Max Schmid's our engineer for the WBI News. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.